Hello, I'm Terry Schultz and I am channeling Brussels. Getting newsmakers, movers and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. Will there ever be peace in eastern Ukraine? And will it start this weekend with another pledge of a ceasefire? Well, it could, but history tells us it probably won't. At least one man isn't giving up. The man whose face is synonymous with the effort to press the two sides and the Kremlin into ending this deadly conflict, Alexander Hoog. But let me back up a little for those whose lives aren't as consumed by this part of the world as some of the rest of us. Just over four years ago, Vladimir Putin threw a wrench into the international sense of order by annexing Ukraine's Crimea region. War broke out between Ukrainian government forces and armed separatists backed by Russian military power in the Ukrainian oblasts of Luhansk and Donetsk, collectively called Donbas. Despite subsequent ceasefire accords called the Minsk Protocol and the Minsk Agreement and the deployment of a mission to monitor the promised implementation of those accords by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, there's been no peace to monitor in Donbass. More than 10,000 people have been killed. Alexander Hoog has served as the deputy head of this mission for four years. Day in and day out, his team dutifully documents an average of 1,000 violations every 24 hours, releasing the depressing and alarming reports to the public. Unarmed, they're often harassed and even shot at by separatists. Tragically, an American monitor died last year when the vehicle he was riding in ran over a landmine. Yet Hoog is not cynical. He welcomes this weekend's ceasefire attempt as another chance for the parties to show they will fulfill their promises with what he calls a recommitment to the Minsk requirements, starting with ceasing attacks and pulling back heavy weaponry and troops. Neither of those things has happened so far. Here's my conversation with Hoog at the European Parliament just after he met some European Union lawmakers and just before the ceasefire was due to take effect. Please forgive the loud background noise as we were in a public area. We've just heard that a new ceasefire attempt, a harvest ceasefire, is being called in Donbas. What credibility do you give to this attempt? We've seen them before, the back-to-school ceasefire. I mean, you obviously call for a ceasefire under Minsk every single day. Do you give this new attempt um, any chance of succeeding? Any recommitment to already agreed measures in Minsk must be welcomed and any reduction of violence that results out of this recommitment must be welcomed. Now it is clear, however, that the root causes for the continued violence and that unlikely won't stop unless they are addressed also in this new recommitment to the ceasefire starting at midnight on 1st of July. Uh, if they are not addressed, the violence will continue. That is the withdrawal of heavy weapons, the disengagement where the forces and formations stand too close, and mine action. If these three basic military technical measures are not being implemented in full and in all earnest, then the violence is likely to resume after a short moment, and we have seen violence resuming after such recommitments before. However, I think it is positive overall that it is likely to reduce violence even for a short term and that will allow civilians on the ground to have some reprieve from the relentless violence they have been subjected to in the past four years. But I read your reports, the, the Daily and the Spot reports, and you've in fact uh, recorded 
again, I mean, what, more than 7,000 violations in a single week uh, just recently. Um, so it, it's clear that the trend is not good. Um, and I mean, I, yeah, the, the violations are, are not, you haven't seen any drop. No, and the reason for the violations are these root causes, the close proximity of the armed formations and the Ukraine armed forces, the non-withdrawal of heavy weapons, tank, mortar, artillery pieces, including multiple launch rocket systems to stand in engagement distance, and the lack of the implementation of the mine action promises made in Minsk. These three measures need to be implemented if there should be a sustainable change to the better uh, at the contact line. So what's motivating this idea now? If, um, because as you say, if they don't pull the weapons back, which we don't see, um, what's, a, what's a ceasefire? Why, why would that hold? It will work uh, if the sides issuing orders and enforce those orders not to fire. Now it has to be said very clearly that also returning fire is a violation of the Minsk agreements. The sites claim they retain their right to return fire, but return fire is a violation as any other uh, use of weapons in this conflict. And you can put the return fire to a return fire which results in a return fire. And that logic chain, of course, is exactly what we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's relentless violence caused by the sites not willing to sustainably and fully implement their promises made uh, in Minsk. And I've also seen some of the spot reports lately, again, um, heavy arms fire at you or near you. Um, are, are, these, are these incidents on the rise and how worried are you because of course you remain unarmed monitored? The biggest risks that we face at the contact line is that being caught in crossfire, the use of heavy weapons, those weapons that should not be there and should not be used. Uh, this is also the biggest risk for civilians, uh, other than us, at the contact line. And the second big category of risk is those associated with mines and unexploded ordnance. Uh, these two reasons are likely the biggest reasons why one of our staff might get injured and are the biggest reason why last year over 480 civilians got killed or injured uh, at the hands uh, and the causes of these weapons. Along with one monitor. Including one American uh, monitor that, what we believe, likely drove over an anti-tank mine at the contact line. Yeah, I remember that. Um, how could then a ceasefire like this, without any of the building blocks of a sustainable ceasefire being in place, what is even the political reasons for wanting to do this? Do you take hope from the fact that they're still willing to say for a few days we'll try it? Well, first of all, it's a recognition that there is a problem. It's a recognition by the And that's size. better for you. I mean, that's, a, that's progress. But, but it is what is needed. Uh, <laughs> I think acknowledgement of the fact that the conflict is ongoing is a first necessary step. And the acknowledgement that something needs to be done is the second necessary step. But all subsequent steps are normally not taken, or at least not taken in full, or not over an extended period to make a ceasefire or a hard achieved ceasefire irreversible. The problem is that situation remains volatile and highly unpredictable and once again it is likely to stay this way unless these root causes are being addressed in full. Well I've been covering you and interviewing you for years and I don't know how you maintain any um, optimism or, or even stoicness in the face of the parties simply pretending the, the situation doesn't exist. How do you make any progress? Have you seen any inches of, of movement in a positive direction in all of these years that you've put in there? Well, it is very difficult to prove the absence of violence. 
So we believe that through our uh, presence on the ground and our work, we have contributed to the containment of the conflict. It's difficult to prove because the absence of violence isn't there, so you can't actually prove it. Uh, but we at least believe that a contribution uh, from our side to finding a solution uh, has clearly been made, but it's not good enough and more needs to be done by more people. I always compare this situation as uh, Minsk is a tent. Uh, there's too many people outside the tent that snipe at the poles of the tent. Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson mentioned another comparison of the tent and people inside and outside the tent. I will not make that here now, but there are too many outside that Minsk tent that talk it down, they don't want it to work, they don't want it to work further because it's convenient as it stands now. Uh, and that is why it is very important also to make it very clear that Minsk as such isn't dead. If anything that is dead, or probably never was really alive, is the will to implement it. But even the Normandy 4 don't put a lot of pressure, um, I mean, in the, in the format. Do you see Germany and France putting enough pressure on it? I cover NATO constantly, and we don't talk about it consistently anymore. I mean, it used to be the center of NATO's, you know, transformation. It doesn't always come up anymore. The daily violence of a thousand plus ceasefire violations per day has become in many minds the standard, the new normal. We have said it many times and will continue in our daily reports to make it clear it is not normal. But it is accepted in many corners as it is and it can't really be changed at this stage. We believe that measures that the sides have agreed on the ground can deliver results. We have seen uh, in the past when they recommit to ceasefires that the, that the situation on the ground significantly improves even for a few hours. That clearly is an indicator that there is nothing else needed but political will to make sure that these promises are being implemented. But leaving aside the Kremlin, which is more difficult to, to, to deal with, you're, you're in the European Parliament right now, you've just spoken with MEPs, mm. you've got the Normandy format. Do you feel that the Europeans are doing enough? Because, we, again, we don't hear it mentioned, the fact that it, there's a hot war there. Uh, the European Union is a strong supporter of the Special Monitoring Mission. Uh, uh, roughly 50% of our monitors come from European member states, uh, and it, the European Union has been a strong supporter throughout. That is a contribution towards finding a solution. What is required that the findings that the mission takes are being translated into actions on the ground so that they don't repeat. Last year we have seen over 401,000 ceasefire violations, over 4,000 weapons in the wrong locations. All of those findings require follow-up. All of those who read our reports, that is the European member states, but any other state or actor and the general public should demand from those who have promised the Minsk to stop uh, these violations from occurring, from stopping, if and to stopping in it and holding those to account who have committed the violations of the agreements they have taken. You can say that, but it doesn't put them on the spot enough. They're not doing it. I do believe that by improving the way of information uh, channeling from the ground to the decision makers, better decisions can be made and based on objective information that we put out there on a daily basis. If the situation could be resolved quickly, it would have been resolved. I don't believe this is an issue that can be resolved overnight, but constant uh, information channeling to decision makers is what is required. Giving up is not an option. Or it numbs us. Or it makes people numb to it. As you said, they just say, ah, well, there wasn't 5,000, so it was just 1,000. I mean, what? It, it is important that those who read the information... I'm more depressed about it than you, evidently. <laughs> it is important that those who read the information understand that this affects real people. So behind 
every ceasefire violation, every of the thousand that we see on a daily basis, the stance, the risk that the life at the contact line has been put into peril. The thousand ceasefire violations is a thousand times a chance that someone is getting injured or killed. That alone should be reason enough to wake up. If we would not say that, it would not become clear that there are real people in real situations uh, exposed to real danger. If we would stop providing this information, that reality would entirely disappear. That's true, because journalists don't go anymore. I want to ask you about that because I know you were just in Donbass again. But um, to finish on the political track, with this summit coming up, um, are you trying to provide any new ideas to leaders at the summit that um, you would like more action? Is this going to be, <clears throat> obviously Ukraine's automatically on the agenda of, of dealing with Russia. Um, but what are you hoping that leaders will say about it at the summit? And do you worry that all of this talk of transatlantic tensions overshadows real issues? I mean, again, I can't say it enough times, a hot war. The root causes on the ground require urgent addressing. If the heavy weapons are not being removed, if the proximity issue where they stand too close is not being dealt with, and if the sites are not stopped from laying new mines, and if the, the mines that are in the ground are not marked or removed, then the killing and the dying of civilians will continue. What we hope is that these real people that are exposed to this danger, including our monitors, are becoming the first agenda item. And the protection of those civilians should then trigger the necessary action. I, I don't want to be appear as naive, but I believe that the humanitarian prerogative should dominate this discussion and it should not be the political agendas of the sides, the multiple plural, uh, that dominate the debate as to how to implement the agreements. If, if the humanitarian concerns, the concerns of the civilians at the contact line come first, I'm convinced that the right decisions will have to be taken. The sides claim to protect these people, they should now also deliver on actions to make true to their claim. So is a NATO summit not a place where that's going to be, um, should be prioritized? Or do you think that the leaders need well, to look any, at it in two weeks? Any possibility to discuss uh, the crisis, to discuss the conflict, to discuss the measures needed is to be uh, used and utilized. No chance of discussing the conflict should be missed. It, it would be tragic if at the platform where security is, is a big part of the standard agenda, the conflict in and around Ukraine is not being discussed. Do you, find, do you see any sign that instead of just talking about the buildup of troops and the possibility for a new conflict, that do you see any sign that they're going to deal with the conflict they have on their hands at the moment? I, I'm not privy uh, to the debates of the agenda crafting um, at NATO, uh, but I'm sure that the reports that we produce is a contribution uh, to them making an informed decision on how this debate is being led. Um, and finally, um, you, you just went to Donbass again. I saw that you were just there, what, last week or the week before? The week before. Yeah, the week before. Um, and I always um, appreciate when in your briefings that I watch on Facebook Live, um, that, that you talk about what you found there. Because again, I think people, because journalists don't flock there anymore, um, that we don't see it. I mean. Summer is probably better in some ways than winter, but there are still problems with water. The water filtration plant is always under siege. Um, you, you've still got literally the unexploded ordinance, the kids not having any schools. Um, how does your last trip there compare with previous ones? First of all, it's important to note that the conflict is taking place in highly populated built-up areas. And the contact line itself, which has been artificially drawn back in September 2014, lets through 
this built-up areas. It zigzags through the water distribution network, the electricity grid, uh, telephone lines lay across this contact line. The continued fighting not only injures and kills civilians, but also has an impact on the civilian infrastructure they depend on. And the more the sites move closer to one another, the more the chances come that this infrastructure is being negatively affected, which will lead to more suffering among the civilian population. And one defect electricity line not only leads to no light, but it also leads to the fact that they can't charge their mobile phones. Not charging the mobile phones, they can't ask for help, they can't inform themselves. Without electricity, they can't store food. Uh, no light in the street is not only an inconvenience, it's also a security issue, etc. So these have significant consequences uh, for the people on the ground. And the longer these root causes, the proximity problem in particular, is not being addressed, the more of this infrastructure will be affected. And four years on, you've got kids who have not been to proper school, daily schools, safe schools, uh, for four years. That's a huge a huge proportion of a seven-year-old's life, a ten-year-old's life. What are you seeing with, with the kids? Yes, civilians, including kids leaving near the contact line, have indeed it very difficult to have a normal life, including going to school. And what is even more tragic, we had the tragic task to verify kids that died in the conflict that were born during the conflict. So they have nothing seen anything uh, but uh, violence and have died as a result of the violence during the conflict. And that, is that mostly from the shelling? I mean, tell people exactly what you see, the shelling or the finding unexploded ordnance. I know that, that that's a big problem. Yes, the, the, the two biggest killers or reasons for injury is that of uh, being injured or killed by shrapnel, so the use of heavy weapons. These are rounds, artillery rounds, that produce vast amounts of splitter shrapnel that fly at lightning speed, that go through walls like butter, you can imagine what it does to a human body, uh, or then mines that are planted on the ground or unexploded ordnance. These are shiny objects that have not been exploded. Uh, kids are, are wandering around, they bring it home, manipulate it, uh, and then those explode in their hands, they lose at best a limb. Uh, and worst, of course, get injured to the degree that they die of their injuries. Is there any effort right now to go in and repair the electricity lines to make sure that the water filtration plant is working fine? I mean, it is. It hasn't been destroyed and disabled yet, right? You're just constantly warning it might be in Donetsk, right? Yes, and we constantly also repair it. The problem is all these repair works that we undertake to the water uh, pipelines, to electricity lines, to mobile network glass fiber optic cables that run across the contact line is all only symptom treatment. Uh, because what normally happens, we repair a line, a gas pipeline, a water pipeline, an electricity line during the daytime. We arrange for a localized ceasefire. You it do. is oh, quiet. CE does. We, yeah. we, we facilitate yeah. it. We, uh -huh. we then facilitate access for the repair crews uh, to the site. They repair it, the light is on. Uh, the, the ceasefire is not being adhered to overnight, the shelling resumes because they're too close, heavy weapons are there, the electricity lines get damaged again and we do the same thing the next day again. Once again it becomes very clear that unless these root causes are being dealt with, the, the violence continues and the damage and, and injury and killing will continue and it will continue without end unless these measures are being implemented in full so that a ceasefire becomes irreversibly stable, which we are far from now. How do you get up every day and realize you're just going to have to do it again? Look, I have seen other conflicts and in other conflicts, in addition to the military aspect and the political aspect, you would have a group dynamic to deal with, which is often the trigger for the conflict. You have ethnic groups, you have religious groups. In this conflict, people tell us it's not their conflict. 
despite being rained on by shells, despite of losing kids' family members on, on a very regular basis, not having seen in some place a single day without the ceasefire violations. They're very resilient and we see very little hate targeted uh, towards uh, Ukrainians on the other side, regardless from which side you look at. Their anger is targeting those who make the decisions on continued violence. Their anger is targeting those who keep their lives in balance uh, for far too long. And, and that is promising because the people themselves don't believe in this conflict. Up to 40,000 Ukrainians cross this contact line every day. You can go far along uh, around to look for other conflicts where civilians cross what is in essence the front line in these numbers. Normally the front line is the division line. It isn't here. So the people that are most affected are at the same time I think my biggest motivation to continue the work because it's for them uh, in the end and for their future that this conflict must end and they don't believe in it. That means uh, they will not be the problem uh, once the, the, the violence is ended. Thanks very much. You're welcome. And that's all our time for now. Many thanks to Alexander Hug, the deputy chief of the OSCE's monitoring mission in Ukraine, for making time for me and between the decision makers he's trying to convince to put more pressure on the warring parties through whatever means they have available. I'll be watching NATO leaders at the summit in a couple of weeks to see if they're paying attention. Thanks so much to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring Channeling Brussels, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.